What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers, episode 148. I am one of your hosts, George Taron, in the still cold, still wet, still overall shitty King Lake. But I am joined by the man, the myth, the one who has not yet decided if he will actually protect the turtle in the middle of the road. Mr. Travis Croft, how are you, sir? I'm fine and dandy, but that turtle had it coming. That's my... uh... That's my argument for situation. I'm going to stick to it. Um, enough, the dickheads. <laughs> you might be, um, you might be cold up there, but it's very pretty up there. It is definitely very pretty, and you know we are. Tomorrow is my last day of work for four days because Friday I'm going to go to the snow and throw myself down snow, which is going to be great fun as part of my birthday celebration because I'm a birthday boy. <laughs> Um, yeah, and um, then I'm going to be burning shit off on Monday with friends coming up and helping me out. And apparently it's going to, it seems like it's going to become like a cleansing thing. Like a load of people who said they're coming. It's like, oh yeah, I've got some stuff that I'm going to burn off as well. Okay. Just a pro tip, if they bring bodies, you know, I would recommend calling the authorities. I would just say that I do not know them and that <laughs> they are just strange people that have come on my land. And I don't know if Siren Divine still listens to these podcasts um, or videos, but um, I would strongly encourage if they own a copy of Thomas the Tank Engine and the Magic Railroad, that be part of a cleansing to really, you know, move past that whole episode. Um, Yep, yep. I would agree with that. That needs to be eradicated from memory. From existence. Yeah. Not just from your house. (laughs) Um, For those who don't know, the gods, the universe, the powers that be, Illuminati, mm. if you will, conspire against making uh, me visit King Lake. The last time I tried to visit um, your home, mm-hmm. it, it literally, the heavens opened. It was a biblical downpour. It was one of the worst storms that we've had in like 10 years. It was just like the supreme being that governs us all, that flying spaghetti monster, just decided. Not on my watch, friends. Not on trees my... were falling down and shit. Like you literally had to go off road. Yeah, five minutes from your home to the pub, which, mm-hmm. in true Australian fashion, did not close despite the storms. <laughs> hey, people still need their VB, man. Exactly. <laughs> Where else are you gonna get it from apart from the pub? But uh, that's Very the glory of the Australian drinking culture. Now, Travis, tell us because we're we're gonna obviously start with our chain movie of the week, which is the Help. But give the folks a little bit of a teaser as to what to expect in the first mini episode of The Trek Respective. The Trek Respective, starring mm. myself and Michelle, who has now been, I think the only way to put it is subjected to um, <laughs> the oeuvre uh, of Trek, uh, Star Trek cinema. I uh, had someone actually recommend watching a fan film to me this week. I'm like, hey. I'm, only, I, you know, I'm not going to do that to her because she never speaks to me. <laughs> um, uh, so on Saturday night, we did um, watch Star Trek The Motion Picture. And mm-hmm. I think I could, if I could speak for Michelle, she might say she'd never seen anything quite like it. Now, often when people say something like that, there's the, the predisposition to assume, oh, it's a positive thing. <laughs> so you'll have to find out, ladies and gentlemen, if it was or if it was not. <laughs> Is she tricky now? Or you stay tuned. You'll find out. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, 
it's been a busy week for me, so I've not got lots to talk about otherwise, but I have, I managed to watch the first episode of Ms. Marvel on Disney+. Plus. I've watched the episode three of Obi-Wan Kenobi, and I watched the finale of Shining Girls, which I've been enjoying on Apple TV. Elsewhere, Travis has um, been going back to the boys and um, the staircase, as well as the help two. And um, we're going to be... The help two sounds like a crappy sequel you'd find on Chibi. Yeah, this is me pushed too far. No, it, revenge. It, it would be some sort of like weird woke things so like the help too. First, it was the black community. Now it's the Latinas, or something Next, like that. It's the pets with dogs fight back. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> he looks like an innocent guy, dog by day, but by night. He fights crime. Uh, <laughs> um, like someone today pointed out to me a film that um, if I ever have an op, if there's ever another incident where mm. we have to pick a film that one of us is going to be punished by, mm. George, um, it's uh, <laughs> um, it's uh, it's going to be this. It's called Top Gunner. And um, it's from 2020, and it stars the one, the only, the legendary Eric Roberts. And currently, has a 1.8 rating at IMDb. I still want us to somehow get to watching Velocipasta. <laughs> goals, squad yeah, goals. Yeah, that's where I'm determined to get to at some point. <laughs> Despite the fact that Eric Roberts is in this film means it could be a link in the chain, but I'm not going to do that to us. Um, <laughs> yes, he is we, a link to literally everyone. Should, should we start with the chain, actual chain, yeah. quality production? As yeah, why not? Let's do knock that. Off Top Gun films. This week's film was I Had the Keys, and I chose to go to a 2011 um, civil rights drama, the help yeah an aspiring author during the civil rights movement of the 1960s decides to write a book detailing the african-american maid's point of view on the white families for which they work and the hardships they go through on a daily basis which is based mm -hmm. on the best-selling novel um of the same name by Catherine stockett directed by tate taylor who i don't know hell of a cast emma stone viola davis octavia spencer oscar winner for this film octavia spencer mm -hmm. bryce dallas howard jessica chastain Alison Janey, um, Sissy Spacek. Mm -hmm. It's um, it's wall-to-wall -wall talent, mm -hmm. and I'm probably leaving off some people here who, because they're not household names. It's just the, those are the big names. Um, and essentially the film is about uh, our protagonist is Skeeter Phelan, played by Emma Stone, who is a bit of a independent woman. It's 1960s Southern independent woman set in, as it said in Mississippi, um, and she is an aspiring journalist slash writer who decides that uh, no one's actually ever heard from the maid's perspective, and that everyone she knows in her town has a, an African American maid, mm -hmm. and that no one's heard from their perspective before. So that might make an interesting book or story to read. So mm -hmm. she, uh, she tries to solicit. Viola Davis, and then later uh, who plays Adeline Clark, and mm -hmm. uh, Octavia Spencer, who later plays who plays Minnie Jackson, mm -hmm. to tell their stories about how it how it is that they feel about their how their lives um, uh, operate really as as yeah. maids and the help for white people, especially mm -hmm. considering 
they're essentially responsible for raising white children. Mm, yeah. And um, you get you get a very clear, clear kind of image of what period of time this is, because you have conversations about um, one of the, the um, there's the conversation. I think it's um, Hilly Holbrook, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, who's almost unrecognizable in this in many ways. Um she talks about uh, they they're talking about oh no it's not her my apologies it is i think it's um uh jolene french played by anna camp she talks about how um the her maid was essentially left to her in the will of a grandmother and it's like they're still property they're still considered property in this particular state but then at the same time you get this brewing backstory of more news about martin luther king marches and things like that as well as sort of like the shootings that happen and the 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 kkk still being very active in and openly active in those um environments so it's an interesting um period of time for a very interesting and revolutionary book to be coming out and that's that's the big thing for me about this movie is that it is based on a real book and that it is essentially a slice of life in a time where a lot of bad fucking shit happened i guess the thing to say here is that i'm not familiar with the novel it is a novel mm. um, i'm assuming it's a novel it's an imdb is credited as being a novel so mm. i don't think that means it's based on actual events like i don't mm. think abilene clark and Minnie jackson these people actually existed or mm. based on real people as far as i can tell okay so i guess that's just one thing to keep in mm. mind here so this film as i noted won one oscar mm -hmm. it was nominated for a number of others i mm -hmm. believe uh, 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 um uh, uh, octavia spencer was our winner sorry three other oscars it was nominated for um, Jessica Chastain and Viola Davis both got uh, mm. acting uh, nominations and it lost Best Motion Picture of the Year as well, but it was nominated. Mm. Um, film coming for a fair bit of criticism yeah. uh, by a number of people, including one of the stars. Yeah, uh, Viola Davis herself has yeah. come out and said that she regrets doing this picture uh, despite mm. getting the, um, the Oscar nomination, which mm. was undoubtedly good for her career because I think mm. she's a bigger star now than she was. 10 years ago when this film came out yeah um and i think that that kind of comes from a place of what what's the way it was described to me was white savior syndrome um yeah. so if you think of a, a film that kind of reminded me of this was um the blind side starring um sandra bullock fair fair assessment yeah another film that kind of got that criticism of being well you know it's all about this African-American guy with great talent and, you know, mm -hmm. perseverance and he's a survivor of an you know, incredibly rough and hard childhood to become mm -hmm. and remain a very gentle and, you know, uh, uh, mm -hmm. pleasant guy and talented football player and yada, yada, yada. But the reason he was able to make it and get, get, make the most of himself is because of it, you know, the heroic the white family who rescued him from the yeah. street. Um, and taught him how to play football, which is actually not true. The real guy already knew how to play football when he was adopted by that is a, is based on a true story. Mm. Um, and so they kind of they, they took some liberties of a truth in that film. Mm. Um, this film, uh, I think you, you've got to separate it into its parts for me. Mm. So I thought the acting and the performances were uniformly outstanding. Agree. 
Um, particularly, mm-hmm. I would say Viola Davis and Octavia Spencer just own the film. Like they, mm-hmm. every scene they're in, they are incredible. Like the way Viola Davis plays um, Abelene Clark is just incredible. You can see her, this incredible um, tenderness with mm-hmm. she has with Phoebe, their family, her families, the family mm-hmm. she works for, not her family, mm-hmm. her employer's child, who is um, May Mobley. You see her when she's walking, working with May Mobley, just a how tender and beautiful she is with that child. And, you know, mm. you is smart, you is kind, you is important, you know, yeah. trying to build that child's self-confidence from a parent mm. who is, you know. Uh, Throwaway and- line that she has about, so like I, um, when she's talking, when, when the mother gets pregnant again, so like I hope that this other kid is um, pretty because they'll have a much easier life. Mm. And yeah, fuck. The mother <laughs> at best is distracted. At worst, <laughs> well, that's me being polite. Um, at at <laughs> worst, it's, it's a word for that is negligent. Negligent, neglectful would probably be the more accurate way of putting yeah. it. Um, but so you can see her with his child, and from flicking from that to the tired, you know, worn out, you know, frustration that's in her eyes mm. in dealing with the the parents in the family and just doing the day to day you know, stuff that she's there for and being forced to use a separate toilet mm-hmm. because, you know, there's this, uh, I, again, I can't say, it wouldn't surprise me if it's true, but I don't know that it's true mm. that, you know, the idea going around by some of the people in the white community that the African-Americans carry different diseases mm-hmm. to, to white people. And stuff. I can believe it. I would believe it. I, I haven't really searched it. So if it's something mm. they made up for the film, I apologize. I don't mm. know. Yeah. Um, but the same sort of thing with, with Octavia Spencer, who has a little bit more, spark or a spunk shall i say mm. that perhaps abelene abelene seems a little bit more resigned mm. to her fate that she's going to have to work this job for you know potentially until she really? dies as it turns yeah. out that actually yeah spoiler alert it doesn't happen <laughs> um whereas um octavia spencer's Minnie jackson uh but again she, she plays it brilliantly but she plays it more of a bit of a bit of rebel you know yeah. her revenge on hilly holbrook is brilliant Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I won't spoil it if people decide to watch it for themselves, but it mm. is outstanding. But my yeah. goodness, like she, those two actors just own the screen for me. Mm-hmm. Anytime that those two are in this in the same scene, particularly where they try and convince um, Minnie to participate in creating this book, it's brilliant because you've just got these two that two performers that are just in their characters they're not method acting or anything like that they're not using any cheap tricks to get into those characters they are just imbuing those people and the relationship that the two of them have together and it comes across so perfectly it's really wonderful scene um and the way that i've not really i mean just looking at octavia's um kind of career I don't really know anything that she's been in, unfortunately, except for Thunder Force. Have you not seen Hidden Figures? No. Oh, you really need to correct that. That's very okay. good. Okay. Uh, but you're right. She hasn't done a whole lot. I remember Hidden Figures because I think that came out not a few years after that. Um, and, yeah. that and that was really, really freaking good. Oh, she was in The Shape of Water. I forgot she was in that. But um, I, it, it was because of my the only connection I have being with a terrible Netflix comedy, I was very impressed with her ability in this. Um, oh, she was in Snowpiercer as well. I must have forgotten about that. Huh. 
Yeah, I don't remember that. Um, but yeah, they're, they're two great actors that really imbue the character performances so just wonderfully. Um, and the way that, particularly Viola Davis' character, um, Eveline, the, the, the different nuances between, as you've mentioned before, where she, when she's dealing with the child, when she's dealing with the family, when she's talking to Skeeter about the book, when she's talking to Minnie, it is a whole complete character that knows her position in every scenario that she finds herself in. And she tailors herself to that to be either, for lack of a better term, invisible so that she can just get on with the things that she needs to get on with or get her point across very articulately. The other performances here, um, you said Bryce Dallas Howard is somewhat mm. unrecognisable mm. um, as Hilly Holbrook. She is our villain, or I guess our main villain. Oh, yeah. sort of the, uh, the, the leader of the mean girls in the neighbourhood. Um, and she's... I was talking about this. I thought she was almost at the point of being a cartoonish villain, almost mustache twirling me evil. But you know what? I kind of believe there were people that fucked up mm -hmm. in that part of the country at the, mm -hmm. during the 1960s and probably yeah. even today to a hopefully significantly lesser extent. But um, she channels our hatred. She really is the stand in for uh, Jim Crow America. Mm -hmm. um, so. Props to her. She did an excellent job of being hated. You know, yep. um, she mm -hmm. did what she had to do. Yep. Um, Jessica Chastain as kind of the uh, outsider, the white yeah. outsider, Celia Foote. I enjoyed mm -hmm. Jessica Stain, Chastain's role in this quite a bit. Yeah. Just kind of a refreshing breath, breath of fresh air. And I think she deserved that Academy Award nomination because I thought she was very good in this. I agree. I, I think this is quite a different kind of um, performance to what I've seen her in previously. Um, especially in the recent, more, more recent years where she's generally been a bit of a hard-ass bitch, <laughs> um, which she does well. But this one being not exactly ditzy, but... It's a different character. Character, I think a very... Yeah. I think Zero Dark Thirty might have come out this year, the year of 2011 or maybe the year after. Yeah. It's a really, really different performance from Jessica mm -hmm. Chastain mm -hmm. uh, or uh, Molly's Game. Uh, yeah. Somewhere. But... You know, I think she has incredible range. Mm. You hear almost playing the, the ditzy trophy wife, yeah. Um, you know, uh, who desperately wants to be part mm. of the Mean Girls. You know, uh, who's constantly told you can't sit with us. Um, yeah. I, I thought she was she was really enjoyable here. Mm. Um, for me, though, I mean, and maybe I'm going to display a personal bias here. I think the weakest performance in the film is from Emma Stone. Who, no, I'd agree with that. I'm not a massive hand up. I'm not a massive fan of Emma Stone. Mm. Uh, I didn't really enjoy her in Spider Man. I didn't like the Amazing Spider Man films. The fact that people are kind of, yeah, we want to see Amazing Spider Man 3. No, you really, really don't. The first two were terrible. And she made a terrible, what was she, wait, was Gwen Stacy? You think she played in those films? Yeah. But she, she looked like she was like, she supposedly in high school, but looked like she was like 30. Um, if it works in 90210, it works anywhere. <laughs> 90210, I guess. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, so, but I kind of, and maybe that's linked to the fact that, um, you know, uh, her character here is kind of, you know, a Mary Sue. Like she's not realistic. So yeah. maybe it's not Emma Stone's fault that she didn't have much to work with in this character. I felt like she was 
it was almost really cliched, sort of, uh, you know, unrealistically pious, mm, um, mm. you know, white savior type character here. Um, yeah. And uh, it just, I just didn't, she didn't come across as a writer to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It, and she sort of had this, oh, I'm an independent woman kind of thing going until she met a handsome man who gave her half a minute's attention. And then apparently mm. they were married. Um, I found that whole, the fact that they even. Oh, they were married? Them. Oh, they were together. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I don't know. It, I, I couldn't care less for that because she was the most uninteresting character in the whole film. And it did feel like, I don't, I don't know if, whether it's um, kind of society serving the idea of, oh, she's got to got to find a man to, to be happy and all of that stuff. But that was certainly there, but it didn't, I didn't, wasn't getting that impression. Her mother was like, oh, you need to meet a man. And her friends were like, you need to meet a man. And mm. I just never got the impression from her, but that was something she really cared about mm. until she basically went on a date with this dude. And yeah, I, got, I mean, I got the impression from the way she was acting. She's like, I'm going on this date because I have to. Yeah. And it's what expected of me. And, you know, when she turned it to the date, her hair all messed up because she drove a truck or something. And, it, yeah, reek of someone her character actually giving a crap about the the, mm. the romance angle, and it kind of felt tacked on. I mean, I don't know mm. why it was there. I don't think that affected the storyline one iota, really. But I mean, maybe giving us some development. But I mean, the one thing that it did give us is um, her conversations with her mother, played by um, Alison Alice Janney, and she was. She was great. She's usually a great performer. Um, and it was kind of nice just to see this little crack into their relationship. But it was infinitely less interesting, even at its peak curiosity levels, compared to what was happening in story A of the, the movie. So it's like, you know what? If it can't stand toe-to-toe or it can't be a nice intelligent juxtaposition of story a just throw it out and just tell it one needs to story. serve story a doesn't it? if you're gonna have a b story mm. it needs to really serve the a story i think in a film like this i mean yeah it's not a tv show i don't need a story b story a story b story conclusion you know <laughs> it's you know it, you've got a fairly serious and 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 i'll admit interesting story at the core mm. of this but um so i'm so on the one hand, I think most of her performances were very good. Look, mm. I'm not saying Emma Stone was terrible. She just was no. not. I mean, I think she's, I don't know why Emma Stone's a star. I'll be upfront. I don't get it. Um, but like she is. And I just kind of think she was outclassed by pretty much everyone else she was on screen with. Yeah, here. yeah um, absolutely. And did she still, did, she was tolerable, I guess. She wasn't mm. bad. She just wasn't good compared to what everybody else was. And the character yeah. was poorly written. And that's kind of separate leads into the second part of it is that I don't think this film tells us or shows us a hell of a lot we didn't already know or haven't already seen somewhere else. Mm. It do- it really didn't feel like it's got or it found its unique voice. And the given what it's trying to tell us of how revolutionary and radical it would be to collect this and to consort with um african-american people about how they deserve to be treated equal in a part of the country which is infamous for being 
politely put the last the last horse across the line on that race. Um, it, it it didn't do anything unique. It didn't do anything interesting. I'm kind of glad that it didn't really lean too heavily on the KKK element because we've seen that a lot and should never be forgotten. I'm not discounting that, but this is a story about the the help. And so they could have, they should have spent just purely on the help. Laser focused on that and just had these phenomenal performances. Just go, you know what? There's our story. Let's roll with that. And I'm not saying, and I'm with you with that. I just don't think we we can't say, you know, we shouldn't have had the role of a white writer. I mean, that makes sense to a degree because Mm -hmm. if two African-American maids from 1963 in Mississippi decided to try and publish a book. I don't imagine that would have been a terribly easy task. Mm-hmm. If they'd had the ambition to do it, that would have been one thing. But not having the context, uh, contacts mm-hmm. in the publishing industry of a way that Emma Stone's character did to be able to do it would have been mm-hmm. something else. I'm not saying it's impossible. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I don't know that that would have made quite as much sense. I think it would have been a significantly harder battle for them to publish a book. So yeah. her role as a writer is kind of necessary, but she should definitely, she shouldn't have been the protagonist. Hmm. She should have been, think Christian Slater in Interview with a Vampire, right? He wrote the story, it was the writing of the story, but the vampire, the story, the film was about Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt and Kirsten mm-hmm. Dunst, you know? She should have been, she should have been the third wheel, the fifth wheel, you know, not the, yeah. not the, not the, the, the one up front uh, of a story the whole time because, you know. So the narrative uh, of her story as well, uh, the the revelations of um, what happens with um, what was her nurse uh, or her her maid called? I, I can't remember now. Oh, um, you're the older one who uh, I can't remember, yeah. but yeah, yeah, um, Constantine. Uh, yeah, Constant uh, Constance or Constantine. Yeah, um, <clears throat> it felt like it came too late in the movie to really make sense like if they had truncated and just shortened that whole thing of seeing like opening the movie for example with her being brought up with this and then her just coming home one day and the help is gone to then suddenly a few years later she finds out that she's been uh, she died and things like that and that has kind of put her on this path to help and then we have just nice big chunk of the um the women just talking and being inducted that way it just felt like she because because the relationship that she has with her mother is like okay we're we're being it's being suggested to us the audience that they're a progressive family in an otherwise very rigid old form world and yet the mum still bent to to this will and we don't that doesn't get revealed until later on but it's suggested and we never see any reason why beyond the goodness of her heart um emma stone kind of takes up this mantle and i feel like that reasoning doesn't come until she finds out years later that her favorite help died okay I feel like that's the missing part that we should have seen when she was 12 or something. I don't know. Well, it just not just out. not even really spend any time with her. Like her story is immaterial mm. somewhat. Like her story of her mother, while interesting and well acted and mm-hmm. I, Alison Janney's 
fucking brilliant. Like, love Alison Janney. Mm-hmm. But why are we spending all this time with her? Mm. Like, really shouldn't be spending this time more time be with the actual help mm-hmm. and their life. We really only get a, a, a peek at their life a few times. Yeah. Like, this I mean, is even... the with the, after the assassination of Medgar Evers, who was a civil rights mm. activist. Mm. Um, and we see that scene where she gets kicked off, um, sorry, where Adeline gets kicked off a bus and has to basically run home to avoid the white mobs and the, and the, the, the riot going on. But, like, more, more of yeah. that. Less Alison Janney, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of feel like it should have been told almost like a, a series of vignettes or an anthology of, like, the opening one is Coraline's story of her raising... Um, Emma Stone's character and then being kicked out. And then we go to um, Abilene and Minnie and we just keep with those. And then the character of Skeeter just pops in every now and then. She's sort of like, oh, you've got these interesting stories, but the focus is always on these phenomenally interesting characters instead. And then it's like, yeah, we don't need to know anything about the um life of Skeeter at home. We really don't need to know anything about her romance life. Fuck that. And Bryce Dallas Howard's Hilly Holbrook is such a scene-chewing, mustachio-twirling bad guy. We don't really need anything more to express how um, how fucked up she is, how horrible she is. And we can see that from Minnie's point of view. There's, it was kind of overcooked i think i think that's a good way of putting it i I think i just think it was a bit facile too and you know Mm. didn't really get down into the actual most interesting part of the story Mm. kind of Mm. like it's dealt with it on the surface yeah here's an interesting surface story about how horrible the the 60s was before how have a sap was in 60s before the civil rights movement so yeah um it's not the worst film in the movie. I'm not no. saying it's a terrible film. I was fairly entertained all the way through it, mm. mainly due to the quality of performances. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it is interesting to see how horrible those people would, how, those, how horrible the white community treated um, mm. anyone of color in that, mainly obviously the African-American community at the time. Mm. And I found myself marveling that I don't understand if they, I wouldn't put a whole lot of, Faith in the idea that Mississippi's a whole lot different in a lot of ways. Obviously, Jim Crow laws are gone, and you know you can't, mm. you know, uh, own people like even officially as in this film. But mm. I'd suggest that life's still pretty freaking hard yeah. for African Americans in that part of the country. But these are still states in the US that make um, deliberately introduce uh, voting laws, which make it harder for people of color to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and try and uh, disenfranchise them because they know that they're not going to, the people writing the laws know that nah, people of colour are never going to vote for them. So mm-hmm. um, you'd, you'd think the people in that part of the world would be kind of embarrassed that they're viewed as backward you know, shitheels. Um, but they kind of lean into it. So When you um, believe something wholeheartedly, it's hard to convince. I'm, I'm, but if you're a Mississippian, um, or anyone from the south of the US and you listen to us, I don't know why, but thank you. Um, <laughs> not trying to tower everyone with the same brush and just saying no. it is broad strokes. Yeah, the south of the US is still, I think, a fairly unfriendly place to be, mm-hmm. um, for a lot of people of color. So mm-hmm. it's pretty disappointing. Mm-hmm. I think, though, if you're really interested in a deep dive into the civil rights movement and 
wife is an African-American in the South. I, I don't know that I can recommend this as being a particularly it's, reliable film for that sort of thing or a particularly it's nuanced. It's very Hollywoodized, I think. It's like, oh, we're talking about this, but we're not really talking about this. If you want to talk about a film about race, I would go with a film like, and it's a different time period, but maybe a film like 12 Years a Slave before this. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was maybe a better film than, mm-hmm. than this one. But um, if you've got like, maybe something like Hidden Figures, I mentioned it earlier, it's again mm-hmm. in the 60s as well, but a different mm. type of story. I think it was a better film than this one. Mm. Um, I wonder if um, part of the problem is the director. Um this uh, Tate Taylor, there wasn't really any inspiration to the way this was directed either. It didn't, uh, it didn't go harrowing in any way as to depicting what, how terrifying it must have been to be kicked off a bus and told you're on your own when shit is going down. And we really, you get little inklings of that through the performances but then it's very quickly forgotten. Um, and again, this is a, this is a movie that is um, supposed to be a, about the minority. And it's that, that, that never comes into focus for me. Um, and I think that Tate Taylor, maybe, maybe this movie under, under a stronger director would have been, able to just pull it all together a little bit more but it just had no identity in that regard i think um i mean you say it maybe it would have been different if the director was african-american i i looks looking at a picture of tate now he doesn't look african-american so mm-hmm. i'll apologize if you're listening tate and i'm wrong mm-hmm. um he looks pretty he was born in jackson mississippi mm-hmm. and maybe it's a personal i don't know Can't yeah, maybe. maybe i'm wrong um he looks kind of white to me but <laughs> um, maybe a bit, I haven't actually seen much of his other stuff mm-hmm. here. I'm looking at his other work. Get on up about mm-hmm. his, uh, James Brown, the girl on the train, which I think didn't do very well either. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of TV. Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. That film I know is very fondly remembered these days. Mm-hmm. But I remember almost walking out on it. <laughs> so um, Tate, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. he wasn't. Yeah. Yet to be impressed. Yes. Um, <laughs> either way, I, I, it was it was interesting. It was an interesting film to watch because I definitely wouldn't have po- chosen to watch it mm. under any other circumstances. Which is because it looks mm. a bit like a bit like a chick flick, to be honest. Um, yeah. And you know what? It kind of wasn't really. No. Um, but um, it, it it just didn't scream a film that I really wanted to mm-hmm. see. So. That's kind of why I've chosen is to really try and push us a little bit, like you said last week, to yeah. watch some shit that we wouldn't normally watch. Mm. Now, it's my turn to take control again. And I'm going to take quite a veering redirect, but it's going to a movie that I have actually never seen. We're going to follow the legendary Sissy Spacek. We are going to go back to probably her most iconic role of Carrie. You've never seen Carrie? Never seen Carrie. How has that happened? I don't know. I genuinely don't know how this has not happened, but we're going to go to 1976 Carrie, directed by, by the great Brian De Palma with Sissy Spacek, 
in the titular role. And then um, we've got John Travolta, Billy. We've got Piper Laurie, who um, people will probably go, I don't know who that is, but you'll probably know who she is. She was in Twin Peaks. She was in The Faculty. She's one of those people who's just popped up because she's an institution, essentially. <laughs> um so we've got a, uh, got a good few ways for you to potentially... Of course, written based on the book by the great Stephen King. Don't know who that is. The, the first ever episode of the, uh, Ill, the first uh, uh, failed or doomed attempt at launching my King for a Day uh, solo <laughs> podcast in 2016. The one and only episode that was ever produced <laughs> on Carrie. So this is the first ever film mm. of Stephen King. But the first ever book of Stephen King that was turned into a film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you're gonna have a few nice launching off points from that one and i am really keen to see it because uh recently they they did another um they've done a, a remake of it i think i think they've um, done it at least once maybe twice yeah um, and then there, there's also a new uh version of firestarter as well the hood sucked mm, ooh, never mind we'll, we'll maybe well, still again, it's, it, you know Cheap, quick, and cheap, quickie remakes of Stephen King films are usually not great. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't believe we did. We do we miss out the the great Nancy Allen, of course, is in this as well. So, if you don't know who Nancy Allen is, you went a lot in the 80s. Oh, shit. yeah, damn. I'm not saying we're gonna watch Robocop after this, but we're watching Robocop after this. <laughs> I always got so confused with the with the poster for Robocop because it's him coming out of the car and um, the red light on top. I always just thought that he was red before mm. I actually saw the movie. And then when I saw the movie, it's like, oh, not red. Did the poster for Flying High 2 confuse you at all? Or because it's plainly. <laughs> Don't get started on that. <laughs> they, uh, he is not in the chat. He cannot, and, unless you mentioned it three times, that may be the way. Can't hurt it. you anymore. <laughs> um very yeah. good that's next week and it's a horror classic and mm-hmm. one of it and one of the more influential horror films of the 70s i think oh yeah oh yeah incredibly influential yeah now is it time for some trick perspective i gotta be honest uh, for fans of the sponsor content mm-hmm. this is going to stand in for our sponsor content for this week if there's a hue and cry, we can see about bringing back some sponsor content. But, you know, um, <laughs> if you want some more Japanese girls, spare me my life, we can bring it back. But that's it. Just last week and he forgot it. Um, we can, we can bring, you can't be expected to remember what happened last week in the last week's show. Um, I can. This one's a bit longer than we had intended. We'll try and keep it mm-hmm. a bit tighter in future weeks, but mm-hmm. um, we will. I'll get that lab queued up. Uh, Play and... me out, Johnny. <laughs> okay. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna have double trouble. Double Travis. Welcome everyone to our first edition of Trek Respective. I'm Travis, your usual host. Probably listening just from the usual show to this pre-recorded interview with the lovely Michelle, who is the victim. Sorry, the the you know enjoyer of the first time ever of Star Trek. Um, and this is our first edition of Trek Respected. This weekend just passed. We had the great pleasure and joy of watching 
the first ever Star Trek movie, uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, released in 1979. Uh, and where the synopsis, when an alien spacecraft of enormous power is spotted approaching Earth, Admiral James T. Kirk resumes command of the overhauled USS Enterprise in order to intercept it. Classic cast, uh, Shatner, Nimoy, Dimitri Harris Kelly, James Doohan, Michelle Barrett, uh, George Tucker, Walter Coney, Michelle Nichols, are joined by Stephen Collins, Decker, uh, and Persis Kambata as Lilia. Um, so, Michelle, this is the first Star Trek movie you've ever uh, uh, had the pleasure of, of doing. Um, what did you make of the two hours and 12 minutes of glory with this Star Trek motion picture? Now, I know we have to talk for about, what, five minutes or something, but I just wanted to say no, just no, was my first reaction. Um, can I just say that this all happened because, you know, I lost a bet. So I, I came in a sort of voluntary fashion to this in that that I made a bet, and, of course, I will honour this bet. But, yeah, I, look, I really tried to watch it with an open-ish mind, mm -hmm. but... There was a lot there. I mean, I feel like I'm not allowed to say this, but am I allowed to say that Star Wars was better? Am I going to be crucified? Oh, fighting words. Is that okay? I feel like people are going to find my address and just send, you know, like a dead horse or something, you know? Oh, you're assuming we have an audience. In the, in the 70s, you know, just to keep it all in the 70s, you know? You're assuming we have an audience. So, I mean, yeah, you, no. you only require an audience, someone to watch you watch the show or listen to it in order to, you know, um, send you abuse. We, we, we welcome abuse. That was sort of proof someone's listening. We well, had a troll for a while. That was fun. Um, well, you know you've made it when you've got a troll. True, that's yeah. true. When you get cancelled, that's when you know you've made it. That's when you've uh, really made it. I, I don't think any, look, I, I can't speak for most Trek fans. I don't think this, I think I said to you quite regularly during the movie. No, no, no but let, let me talk you through my experience of this. Please. And this might want to summarise, well, you've already summarised, but this was my experience. So there are people, he goes on a ship, he checks out the curtains of the ship for about, what, 30 minutes of it, looking at the interior, looking at the exterior. We've got little people floating on the outside. I have a lot of questions at this point, and this is still, what, 35 minutes into it, where I'm like, is anything going to happen? Is there a walking wardrobe at least? You know, I'm not sure of the ship's sort of layout, but that's basically what he does for the first 35 minutes. And then there are words and looks. You need to make sure the curtains are on point before you go into space. You know, you can't just be <laughs> laughing around with Venetian blinds. I mean, Jesus Christ. Well, I mean, if you want to, if you're going with the classier ship, sure, the Venetian blinds ones would be the cheaper option. And you don't want to, you know, cut corners when you're going into space. You want to go with the... Uh, no, the 23rd century. We had wars about Venetian blinds in this universe. Right, right, right. Yes, the, the, the Venetians get very angry if you use their blinds. No, Absolutely. so you're saying it was a bit slow to start with. I think I think I'm a little bit slow. What are we talking about? Was this two hours and twenty of my life? Two hours, twelve minutes. This film. I felt myself aging. I did feel myself aging through the viewing of this film, and that's never a good thing when you can actually feel yourself, you know, your cellular structure reproducing and kind of going, yeah, you're you're getting older during this film. So that was what 35, 40 minutes. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> we're flying towards the JJ. <laughs> just come on, no. There was a lot of. I was getting hearing about a lot of our body parts. You know, especially internal body parts from you 
while we're watching this film. And that, that yeah. honestly never occurred to me while watching this before, but it was um, completely. Um, it, it was a metaphor for a, a visiting the proctologist, apparently. Visiting the proctologist, and then you know we we uh, turn it around and uh, visit the gynecologist at one point towards the end of the film. Um, I got to say, Robo Girl was in. I, it started to catch my attention when Robo Girl came into the picture. So uh, the, this is Aaliyah, who is uh, who is um, possessed or reproduced, shall we say, by Vija, uh, the, the villain. Isn't she, you know, um, recloned or re? Yeah, she's turned into like nanobots or something. She's turned yeah. into a robot or something by by Vija to be its emissary to Vija carbon units that infest the enterprise. Oh. Surely the writers were just laughing their heads off when they came out with Vita. I kind of doubt it. They, they seem very um, pious and serious. This uh, film. Okay. So you're telling me that my mind's in the gutter. Fair enough. Uh, I, I, I don't think they're very serious people. This is a very serious story. And I, I'll go, so this is not the best of Trek. And I, interestingly, this is about 10 minutes longer than Star Wars, but it feels like it's twice as long. Twice, well, because Star Wars had an, an actual arc. You know, there's the hero's journey. So we get the whole hero's journey. Whereas here, the arc is basically, um, it's actually dealing more concepts as opposed to uh, the arc of a character. Because other than the robo girl, who actually changes in this arc? Oh, trust me, the, uh, the bloke from Seventh Heaven changes at the end of the film. Well, yeah, he gets all you know, religious and stuff in Seventh Heaven. We get that. That's part two. He gets but, fried. Yeah, he gets fried. But what was, but this is the, this is the thing when you've got characters, right? The first introduction that we get from the character of those two is that there's some beef between him and Kirk, yeah? There is, yes. Yeah, so it's not actually, his ending is not about the resolution of beef. It's actually about, full, you know, his former love and, you know, combining with her to create a new species. Yeah, so the actual points of that, uh, of the character journey is actually not well developed. And I think that's what really does the film. The, I, I, people who watch the show know I'm a big bit of a Trekkie, but so I find it very difficult to defend this film. It's a lot of staring out the window. Um, staring. It was the 70s. I mean, what else were you meant to do? It was lots of there was no iPad, you know, what are your things? You know, it's like, oh, the ship's exploding, lean left, oh, uh, you know. Oh, like, that bit where it's exploding and they're all doing that, but at different paces, and you're like, that's hilarious. No, that's It's lots of, like, tense staring at screen, tense expressions, and um, there's lots of stuff in this film that they don't talk about in Trek before this or Trek after this. It's almost like... This film happened let's just try and put it behind us about it like they don't mention vj again they don't mention any of the characters especially it's not vj it's it's not vj it's the jj let's just go that now gene um it's you know <laughs> the film seemed to rely very heavily on the fact that it hoped you knew who these characters were my my actually impression of it you said there was a three-year series before this yeah yes like 60s yeah, my impression is they tried to get one storyline for a series and just stretch it out into two hours mm. and thought that the fandom would just be satisfied with that because you got a new shiny ship and maybe new uniforms or something. Oh, they had new uniforms. Yes, indeed. Oh, they were satisfied. This is film made uh, $82 million on a $35 million budget back in the 70s. It was nominated as a three. 
I was I get to say one of my favorite points in the entire film was telling Michelle the film had been nominated three Oscars, including visual effects, which were uh, terrible. So, what did? How much was Star Wars made for, and how much did it make the year before? Um, well, I imagine Star Wars was two years before. Star Wars was nineteen seventy-seven. Um, I will quickly look up. I would imagine it made obviously it would have made a shit ton more because that was a. I mean, that was the that was the reason this film was made. Um, just because science fiction was fashionable against it. Made for eleven million dollars. Right. Oh wow. Oh. And made that a was- lazy seventy-five million dollars worldwide. Um, I don't know what the date on that seven hundred and seventy-five million dollar figure is, though. Whew. That could be. That film's been re-released a few times. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a completely kettle of fish. So I I came to the reason why I've never watched Star Trek in my entire life was because of a childhood trauma. So I remember being in Argentina and my dad was like let's go see a double feature in the movies right and I was a little kid and I was really pumped for Rocky Four, really really pumped and my dad didn't read the notices of the newspaper properly we get there and we find out it's a double feature of Star Trek and Rocky but by the time we find out that the first film is Star Trek the first the film had already started so you imagine having a little kid sit and not make noise in a chair and watch that slow-moving Drek coming towards you. Mind you, it wouldn't have been in the seventh. There wasn't that film. What film was it that came out the same year as Rocky IV? Well, it's interesting. Rocky IV came out in 1985. Um, no Star Trek film came out that year. There was Rocky, sorry, Star Trek III the year before and Star, Star- Trek IV the year after. Okay, so it must have been Star Trek III. That I was, I, I was going to say, Star Trek IV is usually considered one of the more accessible and fun films star trek 3 when you get there you'll find out is actually so it's kind of the end of the as uh, uh, sort of the middle of the arc of those two three films one two two three and four i just remember looking at a cinema floor for like it felt like 10 hours and it's, not, it's not a great film and it makes no sense if you haven't seen the film that came beforehand so for a small child i can imagine now what did you think of the acting uh, define acting. Well, was how of performances? Did you find the convincing? Are you? They act. Well, I mean, you know what? They were as convincing as a Latin American soapy in that they stared out of windows a lot and gave <laughs> other greases a lot. So yeah, the film really hit its stride by the end, though. Like by the third act, that's yeah, when it's more interesting ideas. Yes, wherever said, the last twenty minutes, I'm like, oh, okay, this is slightly interesting. We're dealing with big concepts of life birth death species you know um why are we here how are we created who is god i get that i i got that in the last 20 minutes but i would have liked that compacted in say half an hour as opposed oh, to you, you you know argument for me so it's, this is why this is what why we like trek is because these are the ideas that trek can explore but star wars just doesn't because it's not what star wars does yes yes but you know i don't have any problem with the whole point of storytelling is to explore those larger themes. I agree with you completely, but you just can't have those themes hanging off nothing. The characters didn't quite fit into the themes, their arcs, um, the plot wasn't um, what we call bittersweet. I find ironic plots or bittersweet really hit home the mark when you're dealing with thematic issues. 
it had none of that. So if you're going to go with thing with the big lofty stuff, which by all means I'm all for, I, I would never say no to a film that tries to deal with the big lofty ideas, say philosophically like the first Matrix, second and third, which I know you hate, but I love. Um, you know, by all means deal with those philosophical issues, but it has to be pinned to the character arc and a bittersweet, you know, give the audience what they need, not what they want. There was nothing of that. And stuff needs to happen, like actual stuff, not just staring at windows and pretty visuals, which look like someone filmed the inside of a kaleidoscope. But also, uh, maybe that was okay for the 70s. Well, I guess you know, not I mean, the best special effects, so someone enjoyed them. Um, I mean, I've got 12 more films of this, so, you know, maybe it gets better. Very well. We'll um, we re revisit this in Star Trek 2 when they actually double down and actually start realise, actually, you need stuff to happen in the film rather than just having cool pictures and characters you love from TV. There so, you go. Uh, There's the title, Star Trek, Stuff Happens. Uh, well, yes, give him some ideas. Abrams is sure as hell out of him. Um, so out of, you know, you, you 10 lockdowns, how many lockdowns would you give this? By 10 lockdowns being bad or good? 10 being the perfect number of lockdowns, of course. Um, you know, it's, we are Victorians. We are the most lockdown people on earth. So, so I feel I aged as much as like seven lockdowns. So we're going with the thing that, you know, towards the 10 is the bad. Okay. Yeah. So you give it, so that would be say the equivalent on INDB, you say a three out of 10. There you go. I give it seven lockdowns. Seven lockdowns. So in other words, our very unusual scoring system that's bad that's bad this was a bad film and it was very hard to watch and i like star trek like I many, many of our lockdowns bad but necessary yeah. well because it, it led some beautiful places <laughs> you'll see some you'll see that next week when we watch star trek 2 wrath of khan and us and that's actually arguably the best trek film ever made well so, obviously my karma is low that i'm happy no, we're, this, we're so. going to end it here because we've gone a little bit over our lot of five minutes and but I thank you for joining us, Michelle. No problem. And we will see everybody next week on episode two of the Trek Respective. We look at Star Trek Two with Rafa Khan. See you all next week. Ta-ta. Back to you. <laughs> there we go. Scathing review on the first ever Trek Respective from Michelle right there. <laughs> I don't think she liked it. I, yeah, I, I have a feeling that, um, you know, she, she's going to ponder on it and she's, she's, she's going to warm on it. You know, it's only going to take like 20 years. And then she'll, she'll... Uh, look, honestly, I hadn't seen that film in probably 20 plus years myself. Like, I remember thinking it was really one of the lesser Trek films. And yeah. it's really, really bad. Like, it is so boring. The first hour, nothing happens. It's just like really like jerking off over the visuals of the, the enterprise and you know the, and to sort of a point you made that like all this stuff happens in the film like they go into war but oh my god we're in a wormhole and you're like <laughs> what's a wormhole doing in war why did that never happen before you know um and it would have been kind of cool if you know they actually mentioned feature in some of the other films like but you're just mentioning to you in the chat while we were watching um <laughs> that play out that it always <laughs> feels like the rest of his series was a retcon like eh, we'll reboot it don't mention yeah. the first one so it's, it's actually a really bad film it's a terrible film mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but i think that she's got a bit of a treat for the wrath of khan 
Replica is a better film. Let's oh, face yeah. it. Yes. I, I don't know how though Star Trek the Motion Picture has a six point seven on IMDb. It's 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 way too high. Yeah, that's um, that's a bit of um just fan love right there, I think. <laughs> um but uh thank you to Michelle for being a good sport mm-hmm. and uh assuming uh, she survives Star Trek the Motion <laughs> we'll be back next week with our next bit and we'll try and keep it shorter i apologize for being no, a that's long. totally fine i feel like we need to have your your background needs to be a timer and just at the start of this segment we have the twins from the shining in the background and then eventually by Getting the closer, end if you closer. don't have finished they're right behind you <laughs> I, I think it might be a bit beyond our friends from, from zoom um <laughs> but, uh, i will try to find a more appropriate background for next week's show i'm going to try and Figure out how to have us in gallery view like you and I are here because I mm-hmm. I don't exactly I have been a long time since I've recorded a Zoom call. <laughs> we used to record initially via Zoom before. Yeah, we did. Once you know, upon a time, we were ahead of the game, you and I. Boom. Yep. Trendsetters us. <laughs> now, do you want to talk a little about speaking we're in space? We talked a little about Star Trek, and I mentioned Star Wars in that review. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little about what you thought about the new episode of Kenobi? Ah, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, it's boring. It's a boring show. It's it's entirely fan service, and I know exactly why it is boring and why I don't like it and why I don't like what's happening with so many of the Marvel shows and all, so far pretty much all the Star Wars content that they've made that's been the spin-off stuff, like the Solo movie and Rogue One and all of that stuff. They're destroying the mystique and mystery of these characters. The allure of a Jedi was we didn't know everything. We didn't know what their full capabilities were. We don't didn't know everything. We didn't need to know everything. We had enough little bits and pieces, tidbits. And now they're just demystifying everything. And it's like, okay, well, that wasn't any way near as interesting as I was hoping it was. So I would have rather not actually seen that. This episode three is the episode where we get Darth Vader actually in in the episode. And I don't quite understand why there was a lot of fan service about Hayden Christensen coming back and playing Darth Vader. Because realistically, all he's doing is he's the new David Prowse. He's the guy in the suit because it's James Earl Jones' voice. And... There's not lots of acting you can really do when... We did mention last week we weren't huge fans of Aiden Christensen's acting and it appears that people at Lucasfilm are neither. Yeah, yeah. But um, this is... um, I feel like it's going to be part one of a two-part tease fight between Obi-Wan and Vader again. And we have... Obi-Wan is still being chased by the Inquisitors who still can't get their shit together. Um, And apparently there's no bad repercussions for going against your boss when you're an Inquisitor, when you're, you know, one of the essentially death squads recruited and trained by Darth Vader to hunt down um, Jedi. You'd think that that would be especially considering how the Empire is generally portrayed as very Nazi, for lack of a better descriptor, and very regimented and strict. Every movie that has come out 
since the original trilogy has depicted them as petty squabbling bureaucrats and for lack of a better descriptor english politicians trying to become prime minister oh <laughs> topical <laughs> and I, I do it from time to time <laughs> that's as far as my politics goes <laughs> but it just seems like okay you're your own worst enemy because <laughs> you just want to get ahead of everyone else you don't actually care about anything so you're not actually a very good or convincing or scary bad guy um <laughs> it's just just trash it's it's serving the member berries for people who were fans of the prequel trilogy as we talked about and you know there's a lot of revisionist history about oh no they're good now and i grew up on those those were my star star wars movies and things like that not discounting that at all but again I it, am. they sucked <laughs> oh yeah they they definitely did and but anyone who goes, oh well, compared to the sequel trilogy, they're great. It's like, no, yeah. they're still bad. Yeah, they're, they're you still know, bad. what's what's you catch it or dog shit? They both stink, right? Like, I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. like comparing it's not a good barometer of success. It's like, well, my poo smells slightly less than that one, so I win. It's, yeah, there, there's a point where trash is just trash, and it's not different degrees of trash. This is. It's great to see Ewan McGregor on screen because I love him as an actor. He seems to be a really nice person as well. He's very likable, but he just looks like Space Jesus. Um, and they're not like it, we've we've watched a bunch of biographies of famous people who have we've seen them rise to to glory and then come crashing down and have that kind of rebirth moment of sort of like oh you know, like we watched Ray recently and how he was imprisoned and and had the um the drug addiction and how he came back from that and that that from the flames of failure kind of thing the phoenix rising and this is essentially just highlighting the decline of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And what we've seen of Obi-Wan Kenobi canonically in the, um, in the movies, not going to talk about whatever happens with him in Clone Wars because I haven't watched it. He's a young, slightly arrogant Padawan in the first of the prequel, uh, prequel movies. Then he's bit of a shitty trainer in the second one he's not exactly the best tutor because uh, he doesn't really understand how to talk to his protege and then in the third one he's a third wheel and doesn't and fails in every task and we're still seeing him fail as a jedi and then the next time we see him in movie verse he's an old man who is past his prime it's like okay We've never really had a chance to see him be great. And this show is just going, oh, yeah, he hasn't used the force in 10 years. So he's forgotten how to do that. Okay, sure. But you, what, you're not going to give us any saving grace for Obi-Wan? This is hard. And you're going to hamstring him with a really fucking annoying child. Um, I think probably a good point to just nip in and say, um, 
people who watched last week's show, I'd watched the first episode and gave my mm. thoughts that I didn't like it. Mm. Um, I watched the second episode after the show last week. Mm. And you were two things. First of all, you're 100% right. Mm-hmm. The kid who plays Leia, I don't know if it's the actor, probably the actor, and probably more the writing, mm. he is the most annoying on screen child since Jake Lloyd. Mm-hmm. And then now that Disney, uh, sorry, Star Wars kind of owns two, the two possibly your most annoying children in, te- in film mm-hmm. and television history, I'm like, that's an achievement because they are horrible. And like, mm-hmm. that's not to say Jake deserved the hate he got in this. He, no. Doing a job, but he was a terribly written character and really painful and annoying. And Leah is really painful and annoying in this show. And I'm like, mm-hmm. why make your child, your, your basically one of our core characters in the series, an annoying child? Like, mm. and it's just, I, I found it super, super difficult to actually keep watching. Mm. Um, I to turn it off. And mm. just to finish that before, oh, yeah. um, I forget the actress's name, Moses, who was copying all the abuse last week. Oh, and, um, yeah. I uh, forget yeah. her surname. I'm very sorry. But everyone's like, oh, no, she's just a really badly written character. And you're like, and that's why she's copying abuse. And they're like, hey, just because someone's a badly written character doesn't mean you should be going on Twitter mm. and abusing Ingram. Ingram and abusing the actor who plays the character. It's mm. fucking stupid. Yeah. More than that, I do think she's a bad. I don't think the character's badly written. I don't think it's that bad. Like, I mean, honestly, I think I was thinking to myself, think of a Sith. In some of the video games I played in the game, like I really love like the Knights of the Republic games. Mm-hmm. Knights of the Republic 2 coming this week, this week, by the way. Oh. Um, and I think of a Sith characters in those films or those games or the, the, the old Republic, the online MMORPG that came out afterwards. Mm. Uh, I'm like, it, they're really, they, they are impetuous and they're, they're ruled by their emotions and anger and fear. Mm. And that kind of like, if you can step on someone to get ahead, fucking go for it that's how they work mm. so i actually found her character she is kind of irritating but like she's the bad guy she's supposed to be irritating and she's not supposed to be irritating she's supposed to be someone that we enjoy disliking and there's a difference between disliking someone and someone being irritating touche i, I just don't think she's i think she's playing the villain quite well uh, i think I she's think- doing fine overall um, but it's just n- nothing seems complete in this in this story that we're seeing. There's Obi Wan Kenobi is broken. He's a broken man. He's a broken Jedi. He's he's given up on everything that he held dear, and the only the last vestige of that is this self in self uh self set up thing of i'm going to watch from afar luke which is strangely creepy um but it's like okay um leia isn't the leia that we all know and love she's an annoying precocious little shit of a child who has not got any fucking common sense and yet can also just dart super fast away from a trained Jedi in a crowded street. She's able to just get away nice and quick and ask the stupidest fucking questions. Um, You've got um, Inquisitor Reva, who is the only interesting character because 
part of the the allure of the character is the mystery of how is she connected to Obi-Wan? Strange how when they hide things away, narratively speaking, you suddenly get more invested. If you're showing every single thing and being shown exactly how you should feel about something in exactly every moment of every person's life and removing the mystery, what the, where the fuck is the interest and the intrigue? So it's great that she's got this mystery about her. So that's good. But everything else is just like, okay, well, I don't care because you're telling me how to feel about every single one of these characters. I, I'm not going back for another episode. I, I really mm. didn't like the second episode. Um, you, you're right. It's, it's not actually, it's a bit like the Boba Fett show. Like mm. he's a particularly beloved character. Mm -hmm. He's been screaming for a show about for years, mm -hmm. good or bad. So mm -hmm. they agree to make a show about them, but it's not actually about them. No. They're in it, but it's yep. actually about other characters in it. And it's, mm -hmm. in, in that case, it was Mando, which is actually fine because we all like Mando. But mm -hmm. um, this one, you're like, okay, it's about other people. And like, yeah. I, I would be mildly interested in seeing an Obi-Wan show, mildly. I, I'm not very interested because, I mean, I'm really kind of an, in your camp, right? But mm -hmm. I didn't need to know where Solo, Han Solo got this fuzzy dice for a bee. <laughs> I, I wasn't lying awake at night worrying about that <laughs> you know like there's so many other interesting stories in that universe that they just carte blanche cast out when they took over and said the mm -hmm. extended universe isn't canon anymore mm -hmm. you know like and now apparently it is or some yeah. of it is again or you look at the video it's, oh let's make. cherry pick this bit because we fucked up so yeah, we need to go and get the bits that people love like the video games, like the older Republic had a great story, those mm -hmm. two games. Um, but no, we're just going to go with a boring, safe path. Yeah. Make the sequel trilogy, which I guess you always had to kind of do. That's where the money was. Yeah. But like, okay, you did that. You fucked it up. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows you fucked it up. Mm -hmm. Maybe take a risk. Mm -hmm. Like I was just talking to someone the other day about our favorite film of the year, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Mm -hmm. um, and how that film took a risk. Yeah. And that's just not what Hollywood wants to do right now. Um, exactly. They don't, they don't have the, the faith in their talent to be able to do that. Mm -mm. that because, because Hollywood is not about making movies anymore. Like I've said ad nauseum at this point, it is about making billion-dollar machines. That's all it is. And by the way, um, multi Multiverse of Madness, despite it's being its general crapulence or mehness, has mm -hmm. Melman made a billion dollars now? Gee, what a surprise. <laughs> I mean, it's... And what what the big thing about... Um, to, to go off on a tangent just for a change, Multiverse of Madness, and um, Kevin Feige has said that he really enjoyed being more hands-off because he got... Because they had faith in Sam Raimi to just deliver a movie, that he's hoping to be able to do that more with future projects as well. It's like, okay interesting they've spent 12 or 13 years at this point now cultivating this kevin feige regime and now he's just happily just kind of going hey, you know what i've i've done the best i can to make sure the wheels are on this machine for as long as it can possibly go let's just see what happens maybe he should get hands-on again but again he wasn't a hands-off we, I mean, we we heard the mm. stories when the film came out but they yeah. they, they came in part way through the writing process and told him now you need to incorporate what happened in wandavision so mm. yeah um i'm not sure about hands-off approach it doesn't sound hand-off to me mm. someone like sam raimi but 
Yeah. Anyway, um, I, I'm with you. I, I really found this quite dull, and I just find it so surprising that so many people are so in love with it. It's like I feel like part of the problem is now that it has a Star Wars brand on it or a Marvel brand on it or insert brand here, but mm-hmm. people just mindlessly go, oh, it's good. I yeah. like it. It's like, oh, the production value is so good. It's like that doesn't make a good product. You know, I, have, I know somebody who has become my own Kevin Smith mm. in my life, an acquaintance of mine who I see post stuff on Facebook. I'm just like, I don't care if you say it's good. You say mm. everything's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means nothing to me now. Your, your yeah. perspective on it is if you can't have a, you know, if you, if, if you can't give me a, a nuanced view, hey, Hawkeye, it's a bit average, right? Like, mm. or... Yeah. You know, Moonlight kind of got up its own ass a bit. No, it's a brilliant. Mm. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And you're like, Ugh. yeah. I mean, respect the the craft of making something because you know, heaven forbid, we don't, we can't make a movie. But at the same time, you're still allowed to have a, an honest opinion about it and say they made a movie. Well done to them. Shame it wasn't any good. <laughs> you, can, you can respect someone's. Ability to actually get up and do something, but in the end, the product has to speak for itself. While we're on this tangent, you might have moved sideways quickly into the boys. If you please do, properties. Uh, this is a terrorist back from our usual Marvel rant. <laughs> I um, I feel like maybe it's a quick to tip in that we have, as of last week, season three of the boys landed on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Shamefully, my co-host still hasn't finished season two. I would strongly encourage you to do so. Um, get around to it because this is the this is somehow despite the fact this is being made by Amazon, you know, who are arguably one of the if not the biggest company on earth. Mm-hmm. This is the anti Marvel. Mm-hmm. This everything that Marvel has refused to do, mm. and hence why uh, I believe it's slowly say, um, settling into mediocrity. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I prove me wrong, right? Like maybe, maybe Thor will be incredible, and you know, um, you'll tell us about Miss Marvel in a tick. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe the Marvels will be amazing. Maybe Guardians of the Galaxy, whatever. It, it's all going to be great. I mm-hmm. don't know. Just go from strength to strength to strength. I think they're damaging their brand at the moment, personally. Mm-hmm. And the boys is everything they're not, and that is why this show is fucking wonderful. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Season two, I would actually have to go back and well, I had to watch the entire, like, last time on Boys because it's been so long since that last season came out. It's been a while. Like, did, did they take a year hiatus or something? Because it feels like they did. I feel like it was over a year now. I can't exactly yeah. remember when season two came out. but um, I'll look into it. <laughs> um, season two sort of ended with uh, Homelander's son. Uh, uh, being sort of spirited away by Billy Butcher uh, and Huey working in a sort of US government department of superhuman affairs kind of thing. And the boys had almost gone their separate ways. It almost gone straight to a large extent. Mm. Um, And what we had learned though in, in season two was that Homelander, it was sort of his journey through becoming even more fucked up every possible turn to dating a, a of a Nazi, mm. <laughs> um, but that, that that arc with Stormfront um, mm. ended at the end of the season. Um, everything about this show is clever. Like mm. Just the fact that there was a hero in season two who was a Nazi called was called Stormfront. 
that is brilliant because the Stormfront is actually a very, at least was a very popular neo-Nazi website. So <laughs> it's not by accident. I assume this is all on by the, the creator of the comic book, um, Eric Kripke. Um, it's so fucking clever. Season two, so season three opens with um, uh, basically the boys, so um, uh, Billy Butcher and the rest of the gang kind of taking orders from Huey Campbell's uh, government department to try and they're trying to nail a superhero character called the Termite. Mm. And I'd just like to correct you just quickly there. Um, Eric Kripke is the show creator. The, okay. the source material is written by Gareth Ennis. Okay. I have never heard of the uh, comic book before this show happened, so I apologize to Gareth. No. Uh, Eric is doing a great job, by the way. Mm. Um, and the the show, the series opens with them trying, sort of uh, infiltrating this party, Frenchie infiltrating his party, trying to nail the, the termite, but not with violence. Mm. So basically, by taking footage of him, and then you know, trying to you know, plan to be as he take this footage of him doing unseemly things, make it public in order to try and you know um, bring him in, so to speak, mm. as, a, as a, uh, have him fired from Vort, the you know superhero conglomerate. Mm. There is an event, and you might have heard about it around. I know some people have talked to me about it, and they've gone, they actually haven't watched the show, but they've heard about what happens in the first episode, mm. in the first 10 minutes of this episode. And it is horrifying and hilarious. And that, that's a balance that they've just got right on the boys over the last few years. It is, it is horrific, yet incredibly funny at the same time. Mm. And incredibly risky and um explicit all mm. of those things at once i really wish i could say what it is but i really don't want to spoil it for you for when you get to it because mm. you'll see okay. it and you'll enjoy it for what it is and it is you're just like yes yes this is so fucking good it's so <laughs> good why is this, this is if Marvel ever want to pull out of a definite spiral they're in at the moment, according to me, apart from, mm. yes, they're still making a lot of money. Yeah. But I think they'll hit the, they will hit the, the wall one day. Mm. They should take more. I don't understand why they don't take more risks like this. Obviously, it's probably because it's got the Disney brand on the front and making something this explicit and X-rated with the Disney mm. brand on it would be difficult. But like every turn, it's like, yes, that's so fucking good. Why are they not doing it in Marvel? Somehow... Homelander has got more terrifying and more fucked up in this series than he has ever before. And you start to think to yourself, how is that possible? He's incredibly fucked up and horrible in every mm. possible way. They found a way. <laughs> um, and props to Anthony Starr. Like, I found myself thinking he's not in anything else. Like He's not using this as a stepping off point for his career in the sense that you look at his IMDb page, he's basically done nothing the last three years apart from The Voice. Mm. So a couple of movies were spoiled, um, ready to come out. Um, but for basically being you know, almost one of the standouts in this cast, mm. uh, it's surprising to see he hasn't gone on to do more so far. I hope he has something in the works because mm. I think he's an outstanding actor. He's come a long way from New Zealand <laughs> and the little... Um, Outrageous fortune to show that he did there when you swap go back and watch that, you're like, Oh my god, it's home leather. <laughs> but really, the show's all about Kyle Urban. Mm. Jeez, I, I put it on Facebook, yeah, but I think he might be 
short of Sam Rockwell, my favorite working actor right now. Like he is brilliant in everything he does. He is consistent. He has got the range. He has got the depth. He has got um, brilliant level of comedy timing. He's phenomenal. The, the, the suggestion I saw pop up on Facebook, and it's just a suggestion, not a, not a mm. rumor of any kind, was he would make a fine Wolverine. And mm. fuck me dead, I can see that. Yeah. I can see him as Wolverine. He's got the hair. Yeah. He's got the attitude. <laughs> um, he, maybe he's a little old. I mean, he mm. is uh, 50. So that's probably maybe older than they would like for their next Maybe, maybe. But he'd be good. I mean, he's, he's Bones McCoy. He's fucking great as Bones McCoy. Yeah. He was Judge Dredd. And he was fucking great yeah. as Judge Dredd. Yeah. And now he's Billy Butcher. He's fucking great as Billy Butcher. Mm-hmm. He was in Lord of the Rings. I forget who he was in Lord of the Rings exactly, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, man. And he was... I remember enjoying him in, in that mm-hmm. as well. And you're like, mm-hmm. he doesn't get enough props. He's really great in this as well. Mm-hmm. He really, it's, I, I just, uh, the only thing I can say is that I don't think I can, I can't binge this show. I can watch one episode and then I need to take a break. Mm. It's so full on. Okay. It's so intense. It's so stressful. But, and I know I make this comparison a lot, so it might be losing some value to your audience, but hmm. the only show I can compare it to, I think, made me as stressed out and I couldn't binge because it just needed to be left to breathe was Breaking Bad. I can believe that. I tried to binge Breaking Bad and that did not go well. I think you can binge it. It's just too much. For, you got to take an hour and go, decompress, <laughs> process it. Give it a day to watch the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's in that level. This is the show we had to have. Mm-hmm. If you watched the last two seasons, you've enjoyed any of it, I mm-hmm. would encourage you, as I've encouraged you, George, to persist, get through mm-hmm. the series, get to season three. We had three episodes of drops as of this afternoon. Another mm-hmm. one, I think another one might have dropped this evening. I can't be sure. Mm-hmm. But it's so fucking good. I can't express how much I'm enjoying it. It's so good. Okay. Okay. I'm definitely going to go uh, go in and experience it because I really enjoyed season one. I enjoyed what I saw of season two. Um, so, yeah, please. Um, I can kind of understand. Like, it just gets so much at times, and it's kind of – it is a bit nihilistic at times. Like, it can mm. almost be a bit depressing. It's so full on. Yeah. And it's kind of like punching you in the face if it's with dark themes. And you kind of like – if you're not that good headspace, you can kind of like – it's just a bit too much for today, and you leave it yep. for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of like, I just don't know if I want to go back there because it's it's mm. good, but it's not fun, I guess. But um, yeah, it, it's kind of like every, every time I think about Requiem for a Dream, it's like, oh, it's such a good film, but do I want to put myself through that? Hmm. Once a year. Um, once a want, year. Do you want to tell us what we're talking superheroes? You sort of blow it. Do you want to tell us about yeah. Marvel? Well, yeah, I'm going to talk about Ms. Marvel. I'm not going to go into spoilers because there are none. Um, because only one episode has released so far, and it is entirely about introducing you to Kamala Khan, a.k.a. Ms. Marvel. Um, And it's New Jersey-raised Kamala Khan learns she has polymorphous powers. Um, It's This is straight away a love letter to... Um, Edgar Wright, as well as, um, oh God, what's the director of Spider-Man Homecoming? Uh, 
Watts. Yeah, uh, Mark Watt, John Watts. Because there's so many, so, so many similarities between them all um, that the funky music that has now become a bit of an infestation in a lot of Marvel movies, like James Gunn did it with Guardians of the Galaxy, but it was actually part of the character of Peter Quill. The fact that the only thing that he had from Earth was the record, the, the, the cassette tape. So it was very important. It's a part of him. And Taika Waititi brought in his own variation of unusual music. And people love the fact that Led Zeppelin was in that, that trailer for Thor Ragnarok. And it worked so well. But now it's like it worked so badly in um, Captain Marvel with sort of like. Um, I'm just a girl. Yeah. Yeah. Who the, no doubt. Yeah. Um, and there's more of that here. This is set in present day MCU world, I think. It's definitely post snap as to where exactly timeline wise, I don't know. But we meet um, young actress who I have never seen her in, in anything before because she has basically done nothing except been on The Tonight Show for some reason. Um, her name is Iman Velani, um, and she plays Kamala Khan, who is our young heroine. She's a massive fan of Captain Marvel, and the whole opening of the first episode is like this kind of stop-motion animation variation of her making a video for online about the the final fight where captain marvel comes in and saves the day by destroying all the ships and punching thanos and all of that stuff it's like okay isn't that basically all that most people in the modern mcu you know joe blogs on the street would actually know of captain marvel because she hasn't we haven't seen her in present day we saw her in the 90s but she didn't really do anything particularly publicly and she's doing intergalactic stuff throughout the course of infinity war through um end game and she hasn't had another movie so it's like okay your favorite superhero has had maybe five minutes of fame at this point interesting but okay fine um her and her best friend uh bruno corelli played by matt lintz um, are trying to get to AvengerCon. It's the first official Avengers convention um, in New York. And she has this big dream, big plan of winning the Captain Marvel cosplay cos um, competition. And we are introduced to everyone and everything in her life. Her parents, her brother, her uncle, I think it is, everyone and all of the people, her counsellor at school. And she, I guess she's got something like ADHD because she she's pulled into the counsellor's office because she consistently just drifts off into her own fairy tale world, loses focus and attention very easily. She's bullied and picked on in school and things like that. And she's overall likable, but not particularly interesting. And her mother played by, ah, Jali Bermani, who 
I only know because she plays the character Fiera Rai in um, uh, the Critical Role spin-off um, Exandria Unlimited. Um, her mother's very kind of overbearing. Oh, she also voiced Symmetra in Overwatch for the uh, people out there who actually played that game. Okay, well... <laughs> no one likes Symmetra, but... No. Um, she... It's it's an interesting relationship, but it seems to be really pushing respect to to the show, showing another it's another option of minority representation on screen, particularly in a superhero genre of having a Pakistani family and Middle Eastern family and Middle Eastern culture of the surrounding area of New Jersey, where a lot of this kind of takes place. It's a refreshing take, but um it's not very good at telling the story this is the problem this is and i i'm kind of giving it a pass for this first episode because it is introducing the world to miss marvel who certainly i don't know anything about she has polymorphous abilities which in the show she they they get given a box of a grandmother's belongings and there's these kind of brace uh, a brace in it a bracelet and she puts it on and then that seems to trigger her ability so i don't know if they're innately in her or if they're in this and the way that they manifest is it all happens the lot la the last kind of six or seven minutes of the first episode is just her suddenly actually having these powers and <sighs> the thing is aimed at, my impression from watching the trailer was, was very much aimed at children do you think that's the case? Mm. Yes and no. It's almost like it's aimed at like two years younger than what um, Spider-Man Homecoming was for for others. But it's so much more narrowly focused on depicting this Pakistani family that it's sort of like, okay, I feel like this is important, but I don't know. And I don't know anything about the character. With with Spider-Man, you know the character. He is a very, very world-famous character that everyone can kind of go, oh, yeah, Spider-Man is that kid that has, does whatever a spider can or whatever, you know. Ms. Marvel is like, what, she has the powers of Captain Marvel? Maybe? No? stretching abilities I, I don't know no one no one is she's not as mainstream of a superhero and so i'm giving them a pass for this episode because it's a lot of well let us introduce you to kamala khan rather than let's introduce you to miss marvel or anything like that but it seems very unfocused at the moment and i will give it credit for one thing first episode not a single thing happens that seems to be or is even alluded to be connected to the big bad of the series. Nothing. There is no bad guy. No disaster, no hazard, nothing. The only thing that could potentially lead to it is um, her friend, um, Bruno, seems to be a bit of an inventor, seems to be quite adept at inventing. He makes his own version of Siri and for, for Kamal's uh, parents and he makes these um, kind of light up 
pseudo Iron Man-y like gloves that are supposed to be part of this cosplay. And notably, she leaves them in the the, uh, the bathroom where she's changing into her costume. And there's this moment where it's like, ah, oh, last call for everyone who's going to be in the uh, Captain Marvel cosplay. And she leaves them. She she leaves them there. So it's like, okay, is someone going to find them and create tech? Kind of like what the Vulture did in Spider-Man Homecoming, where they're going to retro, you know, retro invent stuff from that. Don't really believe that. But that's the only thing of note that happens not to Kamala. And I said before about, um, this is a love letter to Edgar Wright. At one point, she actually, I'm pretty damn sure she actually watches Scott Pilgrim. Um, and so much of the camera work, like there's bits where she kind of collapses on a bed and the camera kind of follows her down. So it kind of feels just the, the camera work and the color and the cutting. There's sort of like moments where there's split screen happening and animation coming in. It feels very Scott Pilgrim, but not for a, not based on a slacker but someone who's going to become a superhero <laughs> it's it's an odd one i kind of it kind of makes me wonder if only they'd do a what if episode of what if edgar wright's ant-man <laughs> just to see what that would have been like i'd be curious about that but it hasn't got an identity at the moment as a show it's Spider-Man Homecoming Light crossed with Edgar Wright crossed with teenage drama, but not really any drama unless it's family drama, in which case I don't really care because everyone seems to be kind of annoying and not actually listening to each other. So it's like, okay, you're manufacturing this drama because you want it to be a drama. Do you think you'll go back for more? Probably. Most of the people that I work with will have an opinion on it so i feel like i need to know it's like obi-wan kenobi i don't really care about watching more but Just watching I'll... it so you know what people to talk up and you can talk to people about yeah and if i like it i will champion it if i don't like it i will burn people <laughs> reviews it's got a 94 on rotten tomatoes so... oh, fuck off. Um... Fuck off. no it is yeah. not worthy of a 94 rating this is fine as an entry first episode nothing happens in it though the action sequence that happens at the end is not very well shot it looks a bit half-assed and but it's it's not done anything egregiously bad that's like oh no this is doomed from the start it's fine but it's not 94 percent. this is this is a solid 82 percent this kind of sounds like mm. Uh, standard, you know, um, Marvel stuff that we've been thinking of late. Yep, but with a little bit more dangerously, with a little bit more CW. Ooh, yeah. you do not want yeah. any of that. In your, this uh, is this is the closest that Marvel TV shows have come to the CW stuff. That ain't a compliment, really. No, it's 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 awful. The CW mm. stuff is flat out awful. In fairness, they do try some fairly ambitious stuff, mm -hmm. but they fail miserably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so tune in next week for my more middling responses to Ms. Marvel.
Yeah, well, that's kind of what I expected. He's kind of looking. Kind of, eh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's all I can say. Unfortunately, I would love to talk more animatedly about it, but it has said and done nothing. It's good or bad. Fine, I guess. Mm. Um, well, just to tie a bow on it, do you want to tell us about Shining Girls? Yeah. So um, the season finale of Shining Girls on Apple TV, and I've been talking a lot about this um, because it was inspired storytelling. Um, there was that kind of, it felt a little bit Zodiac Killer with a time-traveling kind of element to it mixed with a little bit of Stephen King kind of inspiration. And largely I was right with all of that. Unfortunately, this last, this final episode as the season finale flubbed it. Absolutely flubbed it. It was, it resolved everything, but in entirely unsatisfying way. Um, there are leaps of logic that just happen because they have to. And the, the last 20 minutes of it is like, well, this stuff all happens because the audience will get feel cathartic that that happens to this person and that happens to that person. I'm like, oh, fuck off. You were telling an interesting story and now you just got fucking bored. And it's in, you know, people have said of Stephen King that he doesn't know how to write a, an end to a book. And he often just takes the, the lazy way out. <sighs> this takes the lazy way out. My God. And it's it's not even kind of remotely respectful to everything that has happened before. It's just, all right, we've got one more episode. Let's wrap everything up. How do we do that? And it's it sucks because the show was doing so fucking well. It's based on a book by Lauren Bookers, Bakers. Uh, she's a South African novelist. And I don't know if this is how the book finishes because the only copy that I've been able to find on Audible is in German for some reason. Um, but it happens a lot, actually. Yeah, and it's so disappointing because late in the in the series, like episode four, I think it is, they introduce how this time travel element occurs. They don't explain anything about it, which Overall, I think it's respectful and good. They don't need to. But at the same time, they set up a rule of how it works and who can make things work. And then that just changes because reasons. <laughs> and it's... The story needed to happen, that's why. Yeah, and it's like, okay, you could have actually told something really interesting here, you just chose not to. I don't understand why. Because you were doing so well. Oh, it's so disappointing when that happens. Yeah. They, pull, they pulled a, they pulled a lost. Yeah, and it was it's because the production value was great, and then everything is like, okay, well, everyone got your last paycheck. Yeah, let's just run out the clock, shall we? <laughs> That's so disappointing. disappointing. So disappointing. Uh, now, given the way it ended, and you're obviously a bit disappointed with that, mm. would you recommend it to people? 
it really soured me that last episode. The first four episodes, fan fucking tastic. First five episodes, really strong. And then that last episode, just nosedived it. And I, I have no interest in going back and watching it again because it's like, well, they set up all this interesting stuff. They set up a compelling, interesting world that is filled with dread and interest and intrigue and mystery. And they got bored and walked away. So why should I even fucking bother? And no, you would not recommend this to a new viewer. No, I, I can't. Despite of how really strong those first four episodes were, no, this has got a double thumbs down for me. And that's it, breaks my heart to do it because the performance in it for, <laughs> for you know, for five sixths of this show are stellar. Everything about it is really top notch. It's just the worst ending that I have seen in a TV show probably since Lost. Oh, that yeah. is not good company you're keeping. Not good company. It is, it is a disservice to everyone who worked on this. But at the same time, Elizabeth Moss was a producer on this and she's the star. So you'd think that she would have had some okay on this to go, no, you know what? Let's, let's do something else instead. She didn't. And maybe, maybe it is, that's just how it finishes in the book. And they would just be true to the book. I don't know. But if I think think it's lazy, right? Mm. Like I think of a film like the mist Mm. based again, talking Stephen King, Mm. the film. Mm. And uh, Frank Darabont directed that and didn't mm. like the ending. So he shot his own ending. Even yeah. Stephen King, when he saw it, said, actually, that's better than my ending, just to support your original argument that he can't mm. write an ending. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and like, so you're free to make me change the ending if you want to. It's not good. Exactly. No one's read the book. Yeah. And then the, the, other, the other big crux of this, what they did so well to start with, is this time-traveling serial killer. And they lean so heavily on that, especially in the middle of the series. You can't think, okay, well, there's got to be a reason why that these shining girls are being targeted. If there is, they don't explain it in the show. This, this stuff just happens because it's cool. You, you, but we don't even see any, apart, apart from Elizabeth Moss's character, where we see him, the, 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 the serial killer kind of stalking her from childhood to present day you get notes of it with these other people but no explanation as to why or how he's picking these people you don't see anything at all to give credence as to his modus operandi and it's just like okay so he does it for lols (laughs) Yeah, don't most serial killers do it for the lulls? Totally, totally. And That's why it's time travel. You can time travel for his... You mm-hmm. do it for the lulls. Yeah. And then the, 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 the fact that he does these things and leaves these clues, like the Zodiac Killer was leaving these ciphers and things, it's like, okay, he's reaching out to communicate with someone. But no. Later on in the show, we see he doesn't like the fact that someone's found him. But it's not because he's been outsmarted or anything like that. It's just 
He left clues. Yeah. Okay. You're not a well thought out serial killer. <laughs> not a great plan. No, not a good plan. So it's it it, it has just ruined the show. So 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 painful to say, but it did. That is a, a mega double thumbs down from George on mm. the Shining Ghost, which is a shame. Shame, yeah. sorry, considering we were talking up. Yeah, at, at I was Apple. really hoping for something magical, but nope. But now, I mean, yeah, up, and I'll talk a little about the staircase and what people are like. Yeah. Back. yeah. So, staircase. staircase was kind of a random choice the other night after um after watching the, the glorious Star Trek the motion picture, which just you know, uplifted and transformed our lives and gave mm. us hope again, made us believe again, really. <laughs> um, we wanted a tablet cleanser and we couldn't find one. So you, you, I don't know if you do that thing now. You're like, I want to, I want something that makes me feel that I want something, I want a, a show that makes me feel this way. Mm. When you're not flipping through all the streaming services you have access to going, mm, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, and then coming back to, we uh, went to Binge, which we've, um, been, yes, um, the, unfortunately, the streaming service. It's a shame because all the HBO stuff's on there. Yeah, and I really don't like. We don't like giving money to, to Murdoch, but mm-hmm. here we are. Um, so the staircase is a tells the truth, tells the story of Michael Peterson, a crime novelist accused of killing his wife Kathleen after she is found dead at the bottom of a staircase in their home in a sixteen-year judicial battle that followed. So this is based on a true story, I think, from memory. Mm-hmm. I am fairly certain there was a documentary uh, as well. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't remember. It might have just been called The Staircase. And I'm almost certain there was a podcast as well. Because I am okay. fairly certain I saw the um, – yeah, I, I know I, I saw part of the documentary series. Uh, it was from 2004, so that's how long ago it was. Okay. Um, uh, 2004 to 2018 so gosh i don't know um but um there was a documentary based on the same story so i saw some of that documentary but I never really got into it mm. but this tv show is so is i guess the fictionalized version of of that true story so a lot of people are going to be familiar with the underlying story and they probably know what happened fortunately mm. for me because i never watched that documentary all the way through i don't know what happened other than the basics of the story is that michael peterson calls 911 Reports that he found his wife dead at the bottom of a staircase after being outside and coming uh, coming inside after not seeing his wife for around an hour, who came inside by herself. And mm. it's a pretty horrific scene. And the mm. police instantly think it's not what he said it was, which he thinks she slipped and fell down the stairs. The police think it's a murder. Okay. Um, the the uh, cast here is top notch. So mm-hmm. the set center, central points of our cast include Colin Firth mm-hmm. as Michael Peterson himself. Colin Firth is a man who is at the absolute tippy top of his game at the moment. Mm-hmm. Really, really good stuff. Um, and the national treasure of Australia, Tony Collette. Um, and I, I roll my eyes. She's a, she is a living treasure. She is outstanding at everything. So the reason we chose to watch this Hmm. is because McCullough Firth and Tony Collette in it, and generally speaking, they're not going to pick something as direct to work in, mm-hmm. especially Colin Firth probably. Colin, Tony Collette does a lot of TV these days, but they're not going to do stuff if it's no good. Mm. So they and that sort of, and, they, and the, based on the first episode, they have done 
Um, they made a good choice again. This is high quality stuff. Patrick mm-hmm. Schwarzenegger is in this. I'm assuming you should go out and lean here and say you're related to the Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm guessing. Um, um, not too many Schwarzeneggers out there these days. Well, there um, might be. I'm assuming he's related to Arnie. Uh, Sophie Turner uh, pops up in here as well. Okay. And uh, of course, if those who don't know, Sophie, best known for stinking it up on Game of Thrones and as even stinking it up even further in X Men Dark Phoenix. I don't know why people cast people from Game of Thrones and shit. They are t- invariably terrible actors, each and every one of them. Anyone who's even any remotely any good, uh, um, aside from Peter Dinklage, Peter Dinklage outside. And Sean Bean. Uh, he was only in the first couple of years, wasn't he? He was only in the first season, yeah. Um, the people who became famous because of Game of Thrones. Mm. Uh, Momoa is probably the only one who can, who can stand aside from that. Even then, he's not very good. He just looks good with his shirt off. Yeah, um, and he only survived like a season and a half, I think. So, like, all <laughs> the... Like, they're terrible actors. All of them are terrible. Like, every, was it um, Amelia Clark? Everything I've ever seen her in, she's been awful. Oh, boy, yeah. Uh, so, anyway, so I'm not here to stick the boots in the Game of Thrones. They just find themselves in the last season. Um, <laughs> so, um, what is interesting about this show is we start mm. off with that 911 call. We start off with the police arriving, and we look at the scene. There's a lot of blood there, and you're like, what's really nicely done about this episode, this show is, the first half of the episode is really um, saying, going, well, look at this, look at this, look at this, in a really interesting way, a really uh, subtle and nuanced way of going, let's look at all the evidence. But it's not just going procedurally, like, you know, following a police detective looking through something mm. like that, but very um, very nicely shown through, cleverly is the word I was looking showing us all the different parts of the story and mm. if you watch the first half of it the first episode's an hour and five minutes um we're looking you look at michelle and i looking at each other going, well quite obviously he did it so what's the story here okay. um but then we start to see other things start getting thrown in you know other story like okay you know she was a drinker she mm. liked to have a drink she was probably a bit drunk on the night she had mm. been she was known for getting a bit wacky and a bit rowdy when she was drunk is this, you know, look at this, look at this, look at this. And we're showing lots of different aspects of his crime in that first episode in a really clever way to the point where you're being led in one direction initially. Then all of a sudden you're like, well, hang on a second. How much do you really know about this? Have you got the full story right now? So at the yeah. end of the first episode, we walk away going, wow, we've really been given a fantastic overview of the mystery here. Um, and really a nice sort of seed planted for the whodunit. Okay. He really killed his wife. And I, I challenge anybody who doesn't know the story ahead of time mm. to walk away from that first episode going, oh, of course he did it. Oh, no, he didn't do it. You know, you just don't know. And they've really laid the groundwork really well in that first episode about who's who, what's going on, what happened, and where the central mystery of his story is. Okay. Um, it's uh, written and directed by Antonio Campos. Mm-hmm. I have no idea who that is, but um, I, I think he did quite a good job here with the first episode. I saw that he was the executive producer on a show that I started watching on Netflix called The Sinner with Jessica Biel and um, 
uh, Bill Pullman. Um, that was pretty good, pretty harrowing. So he seems to have a an ability to to do that balancing act of who's really at fault here, what's what's really going on. It's it's really well done because there's a lot of stuff, a lot of exposition. Really, there's a lot of different moving parts in this crime story mm. um, that he needs to tell us about. And it's very mm. easy to do that in a documentary, right? You can have a talking head who can yeah. talk about, oh, this happened, this happened, then this happened. But we can't. You don't want you don't want to tell in a, in a in a you know a dramatized story like this. You want mm. to show. That's yeah. Cliche, but it's true. Yeah. And what's really nicely done, really cleverly done here, is that. You know, we have a scene where the police officer turns up to get the uh, coroner's report and it's a conversation between the police officer and the coroner. Mm-hmm. And they're not flat out saying, I need you to falsify the death certificate to say it was a, a murder. But the conversation tells you that, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not. And that's an interesting little, that's an important piece of a puzzle they mm-hmm. need to show us in that first episode to start to introduce some doubt about whether or not Michael Peterson actually did commit this murder. Mm. And I really like that I felt like I was discovering it with the the cast. The story was moving on and I was discovering all these pieces. Mm. And I wasn't being told how to feel about this piece of a puzzle or what this piece of a puzzle meant. You know, like I could, I mean, I'm not, this, is not, this is not rocket surgery. You know, like it's, it's not super hard to figure out where all these pieces go, but I enjoyed being allowed to sort of come to those conclusions on my own. Rather than being led by the nose and going, well, look at this. This means, you know, this, and this means he's innocent. This might mean he's guilty. And just let me do it all on my own. The production Mm. value is great. The acting's really super high quality. It's a a really good production if you like true crime stories. Cool. Okay. Excellent. I'm going to add that to the list of things that I will one day get around to watching. Four days off. I expect you to find it. You can watch it on the bus on the way to the uh, snow. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe I think That's I'm going to be too excited. I think I'm going to be too excited. <laughs> um, well, I think that rounds up our show for this week, ladies and gentlemen. Like I said, it was you know we're cutting nicely under the two-hour mark, and we even had the first episode of Trick Respective. Um, we talked about this week's chain movie, The Help, um, and I've picked Carrie to go on as the next link in the chain following Sissy Spacek. We had conversation about the track respective, of course, um, as well as Obi-Wan Kenobi, the boys and Miss Marvel going along a high budget Star Wars superhero vibe. Cutter. Yes. Yes. That's, that's the, the best way of putting it followed by the disappointing end of Shining Girls, and then an uplifting to the show of a good review for The Staircase. So next week, um, like I said, we're going to talk about uh, Carrie, and we won't be able to get it in time because of release, but I am going to be watching on the 16th the new Alex Garland movie, Men which the trailer looks suitably creepy, disturbing, and... Are you playing Charlie Sheen's character in this film? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. I mean, I don't know... The, the, Rory Kinnear. The, Rory Kinnear plays the guy who plays the jingles, and I don't know who plays John Cryer. Maybe John Cryer plays Rolling Stop. I don't know. 
<laughs> You're a terrible person. Don't don't say that show's name on this show. <laughs> Take um, his name out of your fucking mouth. If you slap me, ladies. Um. But um, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. So that won't be next week, but the week after. I'm going to try and get to see Jurassic World Domination um, because dinosaurs, I like dinosaurs. Why not? And I may be able to get around to seeing Tom, uh, Tom Cruise in Top Gun Maverick. As well. I won't see it. I just don't want to pay for it. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I can go to I a drive thru and you can hide in the boot. Picture, just picturing Jurassic Park domination just being about you know, T Rexes holding whips and you know um, <laughs> it's Dominion, right? Not domination. It's Dominion, right? <laughs> Dominion domination. I don't know. I think it's um, the dinosaurs domination of man. They missed an opportunity, man. <laughs> they really did. I think. Yeah. I think maybe I'll write the. Uh, I'll write Uwe Boll and see if he's interested in my idea. I think that um, I think that needs to happen. Actually, you know what? You know what Uwe Boll would do though. He would want to create. Did you ever play on? I think it was the PlayStation, maybe the PlayStation Two, Dino Crisis. I didn't, but I am familiar with it. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that he would try and get um, a movie version of that made, and I'm kind of be down for that. <laughs> Assuming he hasn't already, Dino Crisis movie. Um, there is a Dino Crisis movie. Oh, um, it, oh no, it's just someone's it's a fan idea. Yeah. Oh, okay, all right, <laughs> relax, it's okay. I, I, I heard the wisp of death's cloak right by my ear. <laughs> <laughs> On that so note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Have a lovely evening, and we'll see you next time. Good night. Good night.